This is special content from the Royal Court Theatre, bringing you the audio play of A History of Water in the Middle East by Sabrina Mafuz. Directed by Steph O'Driscoll and performed by Laura Hanna, Sabrina Mafuz, David Momini and Karim Samara. It was originally performed at the Royal Court in October 2019. We're offering this content for free. However, if you feel able to, we'd like to invite you to pay what you can. All proceeds will go directly to the brilliant team who made the work, including the freelance artists, writer, director, actors, designer, stage managers, technicians and casual staff. Visit paypal.me forward slash a history of water to make a contribution. landscapes, lives and legacies. We are around 65% made up of it ourselves. We are more water than we are anything else. Omnipresent, minuscule to massive, stem cells to glaciers, polluted, depleted, flooding. What form can something take without water? Can something take without water? Hi, welcome everyone. Great to have you here with us. We're here today to give a lecture on the the highly edited, highly condensed history of water in the Middle East. Let me just repeat that again, especially for any Middle Easterners and all history professors in the house. This is a highly edited, highly condensed. History of water in the Middle East. And we're not going to the entire Middle East because we've only got about 60 minutes. So more specifically, this is the history of how some of the water in some of the Middle East has been used by Britain for its imperial purposes and how that has affected billions of landscapes, lives, legacies. Hear that? I've never given a lecture before and lectures are generally pretty dry so we thought let's do it as a bit of a gig instead but well I can't sing. So I came in. Laura, hi. Or play any instruments. Kareem, hi. I'm Sabrina, writer and we're all British Middle Eastern by the way. Kareem. Palestinian Egyptian. I'm Egyptian. So am I. And it's really North Africa, if you want to be geographically correct. But if we did that, then Cyprus is in the Middle East. And if Egypt is, then why not Sudan and Ethiopia and Eritrea and Djibouti? And nobody defines things by pure geography, really, do they? But Egypt does have at least a sliver of itself in the area and is pivotal in its politics. So politically, it's the Middle East. Half I am. 
Egyptian, that is. Me too. I hate saying that. Me too. Half is such an annoying phrase when it comes to an identity. Mm, Everyone is full. Yes, what makes us is what makes us. The percentages are capitalistic measurements on human existence, and at very best, I guess. But even if we didn't say half, others would ask because we don't look how anyone wants an Egyptian to look. Even though Elizabeth Taylor looked Egyptian enough to play Cleopatra and Scarlett Johansson would, of course, be able to portray Nefertiti or a tree. We could be here all day for that. True say. Okay, focus. Egypt. how I fell in love with the subject of water in the first place. As a kid, walking along the corniche in Cairo, staring at the felucas on the Nile, sails spread like reversed dove wings, and I think, ever since there has been a telling of history, there has been a telling of Egypt's river. The Nile. The Blue Nile starting in Ethiopia, the White Nile in Rwanda, meeting in Sudan till it reaches the Mediterranean. It has run through all of what we know. Our knowledge stream is literally tributaries from the Nile. Philosophies, astronomies, mathematics from Kemet, water wheels, ironworks, furnaces from the Empire of Kush. Even the Romans and Greeks. Their bits only passed down to us because of the Arabs, of course. Gave them credit for all this. But somewhere along the line from Oxbridge to Harvard, white scholars did their best to carve out the African origins of knowledge. I grew up knowing this, as did most kids with a parent from ex-British colonies. Their casual way of dusting away all the school history book propaganda with enough anecdotes dotted around to draw me a detention every single history lesson. A threat, even age 12. For what you might tell, the way you might tell it. They let you know that, young. Let you know that there is one way of seeing history in this country and you'll be writing out lines until you nod and agree. I did nod in the end, but only to stop getting detentions. Inside, they never got me. Probably because I was lucky and got to travel to Egypt a lot. I lived here and there throughout childhood. So till I was in my mid-twenties, I thought the flowing of the Nile between history and within me, in my blood, could only ever be a good thing. And then? Then, when I was 24, I got asked to apply to be a spy. And I did. I applied. Well, I'd originally applied for the civil service graduate scheme, the fast stream. I wanted to work at the government archives in Kew, but when they said, what about SIS? I was like, yes, what about it? And what about it? Well, look, I'm not against personal stories. I love them. But for this gig lecture, I really did want it to be purely focused on water in some of the Middle East then and now. But I found I couldn't focus on that water without focusing on borders. And the thoughts of borders brought thoughts of securitisation and nation and where we're allowed to belong and why. And this brought forth all the thoughts on the spy thing, the me trying to be one of them. And this one spy... A real life one who did my vetting interviews where they assess you for your top secret clearance. Well, he kept poking his rain-matched shoulders into all the water stories I was writing for this. Completely uninvited and unwelcome. True to form, I guess. However, I've kept him out of things as much as possible. And thankfully, Laura is a professional. She's done this performing thing much more than me. So she's going to lead us through and keep it all glued together. Right, Laura? Yes, I will. This highly condensed, highly edited history, like any other, isn't neat enough to stay neat. We'll be jumping from place to place and time to time. The first place we're going to take you to is Bahrain. Bahrain, an archipelago in the Persian Gulf and the first place in the Middle East the British really settled into. You see, by 1880, Britain was taking over more and more of India and this particular sea had long been the point at the top of the rich Indian Ocean trade triangle between West India, the Gulf and East Africa and Britain had to keep it going to keep control of the area. Just as those did who came before. The Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Arabs, the Portuguese. 
Bahrain was perfectly positioned to securitize this triangular trade route. The French and Russians knew this too. Britain got in there quick with their so-called colonial protectorate, protection racket basics. Bahrain gives over control of all its foreign policy and Britain makes sure it stays safe. As in, British forces will spill the blood of anyone who tries to spill theirs, the Bahrainis. An agreement which only ended 47 years ago. 6,000 years ago, Bahrain was one of the places that was home to the Sumerian civilization, one of the oldest civilizations in the world. The Sumerian language is the oldest known written language in the world, dating back at least 5,500 years. They wrote and they wrote and they told and they told and they... So let's tell a story from here in Sumeria with Ninhursag and Enki. Ninhursag, Sumerian goddess of mountains, of giving life, despite rocky ground and storms of sand. And her husband, Enki, Sumerian god of fresh water. But also confuser of languages, god of trickery and intelligence. Nin Hersag needed no evidence to know what she knew. Enki was a god in the way storytellers created them all to be. Ego exploding, freeloading, pyromaniac, serial rapists, basically. Now, Nin Hersag wasn't exactly a moral compass. She wanted to amass some wealth for herself rather than get justice for the ones he attacked. Even when Enki began to assault some of the many children they'd had together, instead of damning him from the the immortal realm, she demanded a city in return for her forgiveness. So Enki guilt built the city of Dilmun for her, the first recorded story of a city. But Ninhursag was still not happy. The city was dry, there was no water. If she couldn't protect her daughters, she at least wanted to know what else she could grow. He hooked her up with the one good thing he had. Fresh waterfalls frothing into rising rivers, ports for ships to dock and load, and lo and behold, this was the ticket. Ninhursag could finally see it. Water, specifically the docks and ports for trading ships, would make her rich enough to rule alone. And so, just like that, the original capitalist, imperialist dream was born with a slightly more feminist undertone than anybody probably would have thought. But, as we have all seen, historically and presently, imperialist capitalist dreams don't generally end well. Enki couldn't stand to see Ninhursag's power grow, and so he ate all the plants and trees that she'd seeded in Dilmun. This was the final straw for the goddess of life. She started to kill Enki, slowly and painfully, but he begged her to save his immortality. So for the sake of their history, she did. But as a couple, they were finished. She left the riches of Dilmun, relocating to the searing solidity of the desert, as far away from water and Enki as she could be. And there she planted the tree of life. Without any water, it grew. Roots reaching like flashes of underground lightning, pushing up a gnarled trunk, fighting its way to infamy, the only living thing in the vicinity, the only known tree, to have grown full form without any form of water. Dilman had taught Ninhursag the ways of water, the power its buoyancy gave her. But as she was a goddess, she herself could now embody it. She could spread across the arid desert with or without it. The tree of life still grows today in the driest spot of desert about. Even from its highest branch, it cannot see the Persian Gulf. Bahrain's largest body of water. Which got Britain there in 1880 and has got them back again right now. 
They re-established their Bahraini naval base in 2018 at a cost of 40 million. When they cut the reopening ribbon, the British Defence Secretary proudly said that the armed forces who were stationed there were the face of global Britain and that by being there in Bahrain, they were protecting our way of life. Of course, this is business. Strategic interest for our national security and prosperity, which in no way has anything to do with empire. No, it just so happens to be happening in the exact same colonial base and will be filled with that exact same global face that was there in the days when the sun never set. I have met many people, even some of my family from ex-colonies themselves, who still like to see the British Empire as a more plainly named Ninhasag, helping things grow in the harshest of environments. Tell me lies, tell me little white lies. And one of the biggest lies ever told regarding the British and the Middle East is, obviously... Do you consider yourself an honest person? Yes. We have to address your debts. Credit cards, overdrafts, and one you omitted from the developed vetting form entirely, your student loan. Oh, well, I mean, that was... I'm sure it wasn't on purpose. But you have to understand, this is my job. To connect all the dots. About you, who you are. Your colleagues have been doing that for about a year now, sir. They know me pretty well, and they know all I want to do is whatever I can to make the world a better place. And yes, and it goes without saying that for you to be here with me means you've done all the hard work already. This is just the, um... Final formality. For security clearance purposes only. You being part of the first year of our diversifying recruitment drive means there's somewhat more dots to connect than usual. Muslim, British-Egyptian Guyanese heritage, cocktail waitress at Mayfair nightclubs, and strip clubs before that. South Londoner, 24 years old, recent politics MA graduate. Congratulations. Thanks. As I said, somewhat more dots to connect than usual. Which is fantastic. It's just we must have due diligence. We are the intelligence community. Bribery is the biggest threat to our national security. I thought it was Al-Qaeda. Sure. But how do they threaten us? Any individual who's granted top secret clearance, who has access to the kind of information that is handled at the highest level of government, must be vetted to an extent that we can confidently say there is next to no risk that this individual, you in this case, would be susceptible to bribery and therefore treason. It's perfectly reasonable. Which is why I now come back to admitting your student loan from the form. I didn't even think of that as a uh, proper loan. Uh, please don't interrupt me. Admitting something as simple as a student loan on the form makes it clear to me that you could be admitting, well, anything, really. So now is your chance to make this whole process much easier and quicker by telling me what else? about your life, what you have done or been, that you have not put down on the forms. Nothing at all is off limits, Ms. Mafuz. We just need to know about it. So please, trust me. Tell me. Weapons of mass destruction have been and more will continue to be found in Iraq. So said the spies. Intelligence on both sides of the water, US, UK, going to this landlocked place they set up in the first place to set up once again in a string of spectacular omissions. And just outright blatant lies, the so-called sexing up of documents to justify the unjustifiable, which they had to admit they did eventually, because this politics business, you know, it is based on trust. But how did it even get to that point? And why? did the US and the UK need to lie so extravagantly to do what they had always done anyway? Which is to take stuff from others, obviously. Exactly. They could have taken the oil anyway. They set that all up back in the day. So what you're saying is, America just needed to demonstrate, show the world it was as great as its own old coloniser Britain used to be, wasn't to be swayed by a few hijacked planes, so the perfect place to prove it with its ex-oppressors now BFF as Britain would be... Iraq. Yes. Iraq. But why? Let's go back a bit. Sykes-Picot, 1916. 
a secret British-French agreement made after World War I concerning the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire by two men, a French soldier called Pico and a British baronet diplomat called Sykes, to decide what lines millions of millions of future Middle Easterners would live behind. The whole thing was a disaster. But let's start with how Iraq was drawn up, with next to no access to the sea, because Britain only needed their rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the whole coast had already been granted by Britain to Kuwait in 1908. Even though Kuwait is less than 5% of Iraq's size, Britain did it in order to keep the Kuwaiti Sheikh on side at the time, to allow British ships to dock whenever, however, whatever the weather, another perfectly placed area for unhindered access to Britain's power centre, India. For 74 long years, Iraq's border anger bubbled until in 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Oil, everyone says, and sure, it always is. But as Ninher Sag knew, what's the real worth of oil or any product at all if there is no easy way to transport it across the water? The bubbling border anger. This British-drawn lack of access to water anger boiled over so catastrophically that within two days, in August 1990, Iraq annexed Kuwait, leading to a seven-month occupation that took the biggest coalition of superpowers since World War II to stop it. It stopped, but didn't solve it. Just lay the ground for another round, because now Saddam Hussein was the world's most famous dictator, and the post-invasion war sanctions on Iraq took their toll on economy, on society. The sectarian feuds grew, so when America knew it had power to prove, that was the place to do it. Iraq, an eight-year conflict. 2003 to 2011, heavens of illegal weapons used on citizens, an estimated half a million deaths. And still, it continues in one way or another to this day. And it all, well, almost all, began due to Sykes Pico. Sykes Pico bringing forth the British so they could build their railways and dig for that oil, liberating the Iraqis from the Ottomans. They'd run things themselves, eventually. Obviously, when stability returned. Sounding familiar? But as that train line got built and the oil wells got dug, the Iraqi people knew what was up and they rose. by the banks of the Euphrates River. We've had enough. Ottomans, British, those who drain us for all we have. I sing for the cause. Millions across the region fight. With each fallen body, my voice rises and rises louder and louder. I stand shoulder to shoulder with the men, and my voice ricochets with the bullets. And with each change of key, I change what can be for us, 
for all Iraqis, for all Arabs who demand freedom. I am an icon, a legend, a hero in singing on the battlefield. And I sing, and I sing, and they shoot, and they shoot, and they shoot. Then the planes come, the fires come, each blade of grass burning, each house black ashes, the only place free of flames, the flowing Euphrates. I sing until the hem of my dress burns. Amen. I sing until my fingernails distort. Where do you go to feel safe, Sabrina? What do you mean? To feel supported and accepted, safe from external or internal danger. Some people go to a place of religious worship, for example. Do you go to the mosque? In Cairo sometimes, but no, not really. I'm on and off agnostic mostly. But you do pray sometimes. To Allah. As opposed to any of the other many gods that are prayed to. Yes. It's good to have a place of refuge. Do you ever seek advice from any religious figures? If I said, yeah, from a priest, would that be put down as a risk? I can see you're getting agitated. It's 2009, sir, so I've had about seven years of this. I don't know any extremists, if that is what you're asking. I did tick no to that question on the forms. I'm just attempting to build a picture of where you might find safety in a crisis situation. It's important for us to know who you might be most likely to turn to and why. Would you prefer to meet friends for dinner? Drinks? I'd prefer to rave, really. So, crisis or not, I'll go raving. Raving? I like dancing in big nightclubs, warehouses, jungle, garage, drum and bass. You find safety in raving? Absolutely. Completely. More so than in religion? What can I say, sir? I was baptised in bass. Baptised in the River Jordan, Jesus is said to have been. It empties into the Dead Sea, one of the few things Jordan can lay claim for, as well as the ancient city of Petra. Jordan currently has a severe water crisis, and one of its many approaches to dealing with this is a plumbing programme, especially training women and girls as plumbers, part of an attempt to have the best plumbing force on the planet by 2050. So who knows what the women water leaders of the future might achieve.
making Jordan Brown to be the blumbing capital of the Middle East 2050. <laughs> Finally, a capital of something, not just leaks and the refugees. How do you like that? Those who said I would only ever amount to a boil of flesh, good enough to be married off no later than 19. Now, I'm one of the blessed ones. A blumber. I have power now. Bower in ways it would have been crazy to imagine before the water wars. I flow through the roads unhindered, my uniform like the fin of a great white, moving ripples of fish away from my bite. Nobody dares delay me, distract me for just half a minute, and that might mean no water for you tonight. When the sun beats, I get an ice cream. Please come to me tonight. Don't let my bites lose the rub. and say, oh, I can see where the problem is. It'll take me mm, ten minutes. Pass me the spanner, please. I mean, she physically could, but the very phrase, pass me the spanner, please, would be interpreted sexually. Because every single thing we did was interpreted sexually. Because every particle of power was granted to us on the gravitas of our sexual possibility by those who may or may not be sexually interested in us, but needed us to know that we are only powerful if they decide that someone somewhere would be sexually interested in us eventually. But now, they know we are the best. That us women save more drops per hour than any boy they've ever honored with the Tub Drub Hero Award. Maybe it's because our fingertips are more sensitive. Hmm. Maybe it's because we had to work harder for it. Maybe it's because our eyes were trained to search for drops of whatever was being lost from the day we were born. Whatever it was, that was it. Girls were picked to be the senior blumbers. The new emergency service keeping society surviving. Wait, is that it? The leak? No, just a dust rat. Damn tails sound like trickles on these tiles. Uh, anyway, the water wars were all right for some of us. If you look at it like that. I see it. The leak, the leak, the leak should have, should have known always look up. How water about to drop from this ceiling. Just like that. Back to Jordan right now. It has one of the lowest levels of water availability per person in the world because when it was made British mandated Jordan in 1921, the lines were drawn so it shares rivers with Syria and what was then Palestine, meaning by the time the river flow gets down to Jordan, there isn't much left to go round. Yet Jordan's population grows exponentially yearly with the second highest number of refugees relative to population in the world. Because people seek safety and some crises are worse than others. A country with a water crisis but unbombed water pipes offers more of a chance to stay alive, and so they try. The climate is changing quickly there, getting hotter and drier. There are those trying to establish plans for the Jordan Valley to become a vibrant green oasis, but... This is based on Palestine gaining freedom, and even with a 2050 timeline, this is sadly unlikely. The Dead Sea is too salty for desalination and really dying now anyway due to the lack of river water filling it up, and the Red Sea is too far away from the main population. Desalination is the taking of salt out of seawater. It's a lifesaver for those without fresh water, but the process is highly expensive and ecologically destructive. 
There is a country in the region dedicated to minimising the costs and destruction of desalination. The UAE. Dubai, really. Another British protectorate, protected by the British from 1892 to 1968. The place once known for the pearl trade and now most known for five-star tower hotels and pools you can't really go to because it's so hot. But it's also the place where many of the wealthier displaced Arabs from around the entire Middle East have ended up, at least temporarily, like those from Kuwait in 1990 and from Lebanon throughout the 90s and Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, all the time. A doubling of population in just eight years. The boom hasn't all been British estate agents, believe it or not. No, but it's definitely caught up in it being the most deadly decade for Middle Easterners. The driest, too, for at least 900 years, certainly on record. The lack of rainfall across the region has been cited as one of the reasons the Syrian conflict kicked off in the way it did, with a mass migration of farming families to the cities where things were already stretched. Yet those wealthier people who could afford to go almost wherever choose to come to the driest desert in a decade of death and drought. Why? Apart from it being a high-income, luxury, skyscraper-filled, colonially reminiscent, conflict-free zone. It's also Arabic-speaking. Most famous nightclubs have a venue there and they've no such thing as winter. Plus, you can ski with real snow in 100-degree heat. This is no ordinary desert. How do they do it? Apart from exploiting a huge workforce of South and Southeast Asians. Oh, yeah. The world leaders in desalinating water are Israel, Saudi... Obvious reasons no fun-loving Arab would be seeking solace in either of those two places. And the UAE. Their absolute reliance on it and available budgets, pushing water technology forward, trying to make desalination more viable, less destructive. And they have also invested heavily in training and supporting women scientists to help alleviate the various increasing crises. Their water security strategy 2036 is one of the most ambitious in the world, alongside a lot of high-tech ideas. Such as the plan to pull an iceberg, yes, an actual iceberg, from Antarctica to Dubai, which would provide drinking water for a year, apparently, and of course be an additional tourist attraction. It'll only cost 120 million of an Arab businessman's savings, but this is cheaper and supposedly more ecological than desalination, so there you go. Water scarcity isn't so scary if you're living in a place with the money to make it flow via tugboats. A little less controversial, but maybe just as ambitious, is their aim for every person in the country to halve their water use by 2030. Water conservation, renewal and management is absolutely key to the UAE remaining a destination of choice for the global elite. I chatted to my Emirati mate Amala, who I went to university with, about it all. She's not a scientist, but an entrepreneur who has been inspired by the water conservation conversation to contribute in her own unique way. The weather here is not conducive to taking lovers. It's so hot outside you sweat before you blink. It's so cold inside you don't want to take a single piece of clothing off. Most of the sex I have is in the shower. The government are desperate to save water, so they've suggested this thing. Singing in the shower. <laughs> as soon as you turn on the water, you start to sing your favorite song. Once it's done, you turn it off. Waste not, want not. Yanni, I launched my own version as an app, of course. Shagging in the shower. S-I-S. <laughs> yes, it looks British. Who else says shagging? But... We're growing every day. Not only expats, but Emiratis, like me, rated by their shower shagability. <laughs> so we have this unbelievable USP. Environmentally friendly, because you'd have a shower pre and post-date anyway, of course, and you save the petrol, resources, of fancy dinners, all that. Minimum time investment. No need to worry about an outfit or, or sweat marks or anyone catching you. People are renovating their bathrooms just so they can get better matches. And it's making a real change 
in how millennials view their water usage generally. We use so much more of it than we have. It's a crisis, really. Imagine the British colonizing a place without a river. But we did get bonus points for the tip of a land point that pokes into Iran and controls sea access from the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman to the Arabian Sea straight to India. Not even Soas could have taught me that Imperial Britain's dependence on water resources in the Middle East would decades later make me the most popular dating entrepreneur in the UAE. <laughs> Anyway, how are you, Habibti? Your sex life especially, tell me. Do you have a boyfriend? One of your friends whom I met as part of this process, she told me that you did have one. A few years ago now. He wasn't particularly nice, she said. Gave me a name. I looked him up found a tabloid article with a photograph. Him and his father standing on the roof of their home next to a huge pole with a Union Jack flag flying proudly on the roof. The council ordered them to take it down. They refused. Won their appeal eventually. A lot of local support. Your friend, she said he put you in hospital. That boyfriend. More than once. I found the records. Read them all. Found it hard to believe you wouldn't want him sent down for what he did. I was just a kid. How did it make you feel? About what? How did it make you feel that he put you through all that at such a young age and with a Union Jack flag flying proudly on the roof? I don't know. It's not a trick question. Look at me. I'm not trying to trick you. I don't know how the flag made me feel. I don't... The flag in relation to what he did to you, Sabrina, that is what I'm specifically asking here. I don't know what you're asking. Does the Union Jack... Does the British flag, our national flag, does the Union Jack, does the British flag, our national flag, does the Union Jack, does the British flag, our national flag, is it inextricably linked with violence to you? Palestine. to Jerusalem, which is in Palestine, in 1917, accompanied by tanks and guns and the Balfour Declaration, declared by a British man that the land of Palestine would now become a national home for the Jewish people, to a country of people, some of whom were Jewish, most of whom were not. And Palestine was not Britain's to give away to anybody else, no matter how much in need anybody else might be. And after the horrors of the Holocaust, nobody could say the Jewish people People weren't in need, but why would this in this way be the answer? Of course, it was a very small part of the reason Britain did what they did. Britain needed, wanted, northeast access to the Suez. It needed, wanted a base next to Egypt. It needed to appease a lot of people, a lot of people, because it had made a lot of promises it couldn't keep, and now... Now, now they were fucked, so they fucked over everyone else and it's still a complete fucking mess. Yes, 
Gaza's water crisis might make it completely uninhabitable. This is predicted not actually because there is no water. Of course, the strip is a stretch of beach right across the Med. The Mediterranean Sea, that place of turquoise, peace and white stone-housed holidays on hills filled with lavender. And Israel does not allow them desalination or aquifers or new wells because to get them they have to apply. And the applications are denied, denied, denied. And I'm telling you, this is the truth. And it's not just Gaza, Ramallah, the administrative capital of Palestine, whilst it is not allowed an actual capital, which would be East Jerusalem, which is in territory that the United Nations, even the United Kingdom, but not the United States of America, currently recognises as occupied land. Well, Ramallah has more rainfall than London, but Israel takes 80% of the rainwater from the West Bank aquifer and is constantly written about as a country who has solved its water scarcity problem with technology and tenacity. In 2011, Israel destroyed 89 water-related structures in the West Bank, including cisterns and wells. Demolishing a well so people cannot reach water that has fell from the sky to sustain life. Why? What is the fucking point? Sex with an animal. Wow. It's a standard question. We're looking for anything that might give our enemies leverage here, remember? As long as we know it, we can contain it. Bestiality is more common than you might imagine. Now, have you had sex with an animal? Depends, I suppose. On what? On definitions. My definition of an animal might be someone else's definition of a hero, a legend, a lost soul seeking solace in a young girl's hair. It might be something that exists only in a cage, something to be eaten or petted, stroked or thrown onto a bed before you can count how many legs it has. How many legs, how many, many legs? 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 France, you get five, mostly North African, except Syria and Lebanon, legs don't kick too hard. Russia, your legs aren't really legs, you're gonna get arms, yes, a few arms to share with Iran, as long as you leave the legs to us and shush, shush, Britain. Yes, you, you are the legs of this operation, you will walk the walk legs up, down, march them all around, you, you get one way or another. One leg Egypt. Two leg Cyprus. Three leg Iran. Four leg Jordan. Five leg Palestine. Six leg Saudi. Seven leg Kuwait. Eight leg Qatar. Nine leg Bahrain. Ten leg UAE. Eleven leg Oman. Twelve leg Yemen. Yemen. In 2019, the UN declared it as suffering the worst man-made humanitarian crisis in all of history. 22 million require aid. 100,000 children under five have died of starvation. Lines drawn by greed, impatience and ego on who needs to go home early to say sorry for their infidelity. So can we just draw the line? Can we just get on with it? Because there's not much to it, is there? There's not much more that we're doing here than just drawing a line in the godforsaken sand, is there? This is where they lead. Lockheed Martin, British-American arms manufacturer, makes a bomb that in 2018 killed 40 Yemeni boys on a bus coming back from school. 180 years ago, in 1839, British forces forcibly occupied Aden at the tip of what is now Yemen in order to launch attacks on the pirates attacking British ships bound to and from India. It became convenient for refuelling and after the Suez Canal opening, it became one of the most important ports in all the world, to the British, of course. An importance based on water, empire, untouchable power, an importance that took away any independence, any consequence of concentrating all resources to a port before you leave and then... Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, is set to become the first place in the world, followed shortly after by the entire country to officially, completely run out of fresh water. Yemen had lush, arable areas, even as a water-scarce nation before this current war 
but Saudi and UAE and USA and UK and Yemen and Russia and Qatar and Sudan and Morocco and Kuwait and Iraq and Senegal and Jordan and Bahrain and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and Al-Haraq and whoever else is involved in attacks in part over access to the Suez Canal have chosen water as the weapon for slow murder. The pipes bomb them. Desalination tanks smash that. Set fire to supply infrastructure. Watch them choke of smoke mixed with cholera. Twist their organs with thirst. Water poor does not mean it has all been spent, but that the wealth has been taken away. Your twelfth leg not allowed a shred of the wetness you're famous for. 98% of Yemeni women have been sexually assaulted during this four-year drawn-out conflict. 98% of Yemeni women have been sexually assaulted during this four-year drawn-out conflict. Where will they wash themselves? Will they scrub with sand grains until they regain the glass hours they've lost to lines and legs drawn by lords, made into marble statues, soaked with rain and engraved with their grand names for all of time? Whilst these women, born to the same earth but emerging from its middle, they can't even give graves to their children let alone engrave them. They can't rid their skin of intrusion, intrusion, invasion, intervention, all the same old war, and no amount of water can wash it away. This is an old, old war. This is an old, old war. This is an old, old war This is an old, old war Blame us for the drought, blame us for the thunder Blame us for the waves taking us all under Burn us for your palace, burn us for your crown Burn us for our bodies taking us all down This is an old, old war This is an old, old war For the waves taking us all under Burn us for your palace Burn us for your crown Burn us for our bodies Taking us all down This is an old, old war 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 We carry, we carry, we carry We carry history on our shoulders we carry history in our hearts We carried ourselves over mountains To end up drowning in the sand So blame us for the drought Blame us for the thunder Blame us for the waves Taking us all under Burn us for your palace Burn us for your crown Burn us for our bodies Taking us all down this season No, sir, I have never had sex with an animal. Now to Egypt, 1882. Britain invades. At first with the French, then to throw out the French over the Suez Canal. The proper start of a manipulative, abusive, 80-year or so British-Egyptian relationship. Which in many ways set the ways of where Egypt is now. The Suez Canal being so central to imperial power, making Egypt and all things within it, artefacts, people, politicians, languages, central to the control centre of empire. 
Don't let the people control their own history. Don't let the people control their own politics. Don't let the people know more than we do about the alabaster limestone mud-bricked wonders that were built there. Don't let the elected leaders lead. They need, we need, you need. Dictators, 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 and don't you forget it. Right now, Egypt has more writers in prison than any other country. And what about here? Who knows what the future holds? We can only wait and see. I want to understand more about your father. What about him? Born in 1956, in Cairo, in Egypt. Quite a coincidence, isn't it? In what way? 1956 being the year of the Suez Canal crisis. Britain reinvaded his country. How did he feel about that? He was a baby. It's quite a major world event. Said to herald the end of empire. I'm sure he grew to have an opinion on it. He hasn't mentioned it. Has he mentioned the Battle of Tel el-Kabir, 1882, which allowed the British and French to take over for the first time and not the last? No. Has he mentioned the fact that Britain could not be the empire it was without the Suez Canal? Not that I recall. How did he feel about the assassination of Anwar Sadat by Muslim extremists in 1981? He'd have been a young man then. Happy. Angry? I don't know. How did he feel about the Twin Towers? How would he feel about you doing this? I don't know. Right. So what do you two talk about then? What songs to choose for karaoke mainly? He's a really great singer. He lives for that actually, karaoke. Napoleon Britain oh France is growing strong was in fear the France would block off India 1882 Britain occupied Egypt Hans touching hands Biggest trading partners in the Middle East You told me That I'd Suez Canal By 1956 things didn't seem so good That Britain de-occupied Best believe And does he sing karaoke in Arabic or English? English. And what about you? I can't sing. But you speak Arabic. Did units at university? I have here that you even attended an Arabic language school in Cairo two years ago. Why would you do that? Didn't you learn it at home? Why would you go to an Arabic language school when you have an Arabic dad? What were you really there to do? How can you learn something you already know? Answer me that. He didn't want me to speak Arabic, sir. I used to be angry about that, but now I think he just didn't want you to do this. And why do you, Miss Mafuz, want to do this? What do you understand about me now, from this process? That isn't how this works, Ms. Mafuz. It isn't a two-way Q&A. Well, it's not a karaoke night either, so I think we're way beyond how things work. What do you understand about me now? Who made you, Ms. Mafuz? Was it us or them? Are you not made of sewer silt? How do we know you won't shore our boats by making yourself bigger than we made you? Did we make you? Look at me. 
look at me. Did we? Did we make you? Yes, you did. And I hate you for it. You and your ruling elite that pretends to no longer rule. But without ruling can take away wells and water and babies from mothers and blood from those just going to school and passports and citizenships and freedom without trial and names and nations and a vote and a voted for parliament and any sense of empowerment that you can amount to something, that you can really change something within the stones and soil and bricks and air and roads and rivers you were raised in. You even take away our words. You try to drown them and you do, but they don't go down easy. No, they, they always make their way to release the anger under the waterbed, flood the ground, but still you manage, you always manage to find a way to drain them all away. And you do this without ruling. You take it all away in order to keep an order that you say is no longer the order. It's all beyond that now. It's all changed now. And now you know I'm talking about here and now that the past, the turbulent past of nation building, industrial revolutionising, war winning that needed a steady hand, a hand that came from stately homes and turret top schools. No, it's true. Times have changed now, haven't they? Anyone can do anything, can be anything now, can't they? What are we all waiting for? Thank you, Ms. Mafuz. I think we're finished here. As you know, I have to assess on the facts that I have, and the facts that I have make your risk factor extremely high. You understand, don't you, Sabrina, with the Mafuz and the corresponding warmth you feel for the Middle East, and of course your debts, your lack of assets financially, your history, you understand. Bribery, it's a big risk with what we do. But there's no harm in trying again if things become uh, different for you in the future. I appreciate your time here. And I'm sure you'll do well in whatever it is you choose. So I guess this is it. Bitterness at being too poor, too foreign, too risque, too risky to get a job I never even wanted till I was offered it. And I was offered it because I was all those things apparently. Distilled over the years to get to this. Literally this. You and us and this space a disproportionately important space considering its size and coffiny shape but it is still only one space a space that was also made possible by empire hans sloan built sloan square he did so with the riches of his wife which she inherited from her slave trading plantation owning relatives he used that money to build so many of these streets, so much of this city still owned today by his descendants. He also used it to bring back souvenirs of empire, especially from Egypt. It was his collection which founded the British Museum. Ya Allah, my risk will never lessen because my blood will never be water until my body is returned to the earth, the earth which is not owned but shared and so. We demand a share of power, of control, of freedom, even if we can only have it in here at first because in here, in this little room, we survive with you. We build up enough of ourselves to say, we will not be drained, we will not disappear, we will not retreat. We will put on a brave face for those that can't be seen. And we will, most definitely, rave. 
by the Royal Court Theatre, recorded at Hackney Rose Studios, performed by Laura Hanna, David Mimini, Sabrina Mathews and Kareem Samara. Written by Sabrina Mathews, composed by Kareem Samara, directed by Steph O'Driscoll, sound designed, mixed and engineered by Dom Kennedy. listening we are offering this content for free however if you're able to we'd like to invite you to pay what you can all proceeds will go directly to the brilliant team who made the work including the freelance artists writer director actors designers stage managers technicians and casual staff visit paypal.me forward slash a history of water to make a contribution